The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Hi, everyone. Um, lovely to see you all uh, here this evening. Um, thanks for joining us. So I'm Orla. I'm one of the co-conveners of the School of English staff postgraduate seminar series, along with Janice and Maggie. Um, and I'm really delighted to welcome you all to our penultimate seminar for Michaelmas term. Um, so on that, uh, please note that registration for our final seminar um, Tuesday today fortnight is open and you can find details about that. Um, on the Long Room Hub What's On website page, on our Twitter or on the School of English um, website. And we've also just circulated our call for papers um, for Hillary term. So the staff postgraduate uh, seminar series is a really friendly, supportive place to um, present work or work in progress. Um, and we'd really love to hear from you. We've been lucky enough to have some brilliant speakers so far in Michaelmas term, and we're looking forward to another semester um, of really engaging um, scholarship. Um, so please do feel free to get in touch whether you're a seasoned speaker or are new to presenting. Um, so this evening we're going to be hearing from two of our very own PhD students um, from the School of English, um, Esther Riley and Reb Eastler. Um, and so before I introduce Esther and Reb, um, I just want to do a little bit of housekeeping. So um, both speakers will be talking for 20 minutes each. Um, and then there'll be a Q&A at the end. So please do ask any questions you have in the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen. Um, and we'll try and get through as many of them as we can at the end of the talks. Um, if you tweet, um, please feel free to tag at seminars TCD 2020, at TLR Hub and at TCD English. Um, and of course, the speakers themselves. So at EJ Riley 28 and at Reb Eastler. Um, hopefully this isn't relevant for today, but if there are any technical issues, please bear with us and um, we'll try our hardest to fix them in a timely manner. Um, but on to the speakers now. So we're going to be hearing from Esther first uh, today. And Esther Riley is a second year PhD student in the School of English. Her research investigates freak bodies in the fiction of Wilkie Collins, who drew analogies between the freak body and marginalized bodies that were othered by constructs of disability, race, ethnicity, gender, and social class. Um, Esther's thesis explores how Collins sensationalized the freakish body to destabilize Victorian ideas and images of normative personhood, um, bringing to the surface the life stories of many real freak show performers um, that he drew on. And Esther is currently a TA in the School of English and she holds an MPhil in Children's Lit from Trinity and a BA in English from the University of Pittsburgh. Um, we will then after Esther hear from um, Reb Eastler, who is also a second year PhD in the School of English, um, where she researches child death in the works of Charles Dickens. Um, and Reb completed her master's in 2017 at the University of Edinburgh, writing her thesis on George MacDonald and childlike imagination in his fairy tales. She finished her undergraduate degree in Minnesota at Concordia College Moorhead, um, and she double majored in English literature and history there. Uh, and today, Reb will be speaking about decomposing the innocent child, Joe and the churchyard in Dickens's Bleak House. So um, all that being said, uh, without further ado, I'd like to hand over to Esther, who is going to get things started today. Great. Thanks, Orla. Um, OK, I guess I'll just jump right into it. Um, let's see. The discoloration of my skin had begun. The complexion which you were so good as to admire has disappeared forever. I am now of a livid ashen color, so like death, that I sometimes startle myself when I look in the glass. In about six weeks more, as the doctor calculates, this will deepen to a blackish blue, and then the saturation, as he calls it, will be complete. In this passage from Poor Miss Finch, Collins's hero, Oscar Duborg, first recognizes the physical effects of ingesting silver nitrate to cure his epileptic seizures following an attack in his silversmith workshop. Oscar suffers a swift kick to the left side of his head by two criminal attackers, and the blows cause him to have convulsive epileptic fits on the opposite side of his body, in which his balance and nervous system are severely shaken. 
Desperate to find a way to stop his seizures, Oscar seeks medical treatment and is prescribed silver nitrate and is warned about the effects it would have on his body. Oscar admits, quote, I know the price I pay for being cured, end quote. After ingesting silver nitrate, Oscar's sin is saturated with a darkening hue, eventually turning his skin blue. And while the treatment cures his epileptic fits, the stain on his skin is permanent. The practice of treating epilepsy with silver nitrate dates back to the early 18th century. As an effective treatment for epilepsy, silver nitrate was known to cause a blackish blue or sometimes purple tint that permanently discolored the skin. By the early 19th century, the blue skin color caused by silver nitrate ingestion was named Argyria after Argyros, the ancient Greek name for the element silver. In this slide, you see the blue tinged effect of silver nitrate uh, treatment on the skin. Although using silver nitrate as a form of treatment for epilepsy was practically out of date by the 1870s, around the time of poor, uh, poor Miss Finch was published, it was still used as a treatment for epilepsy in a number of ailments in the late 1850s when poor Miss Finch is set in 1858. Collins's contemporaries and more recent scholars show that medical discussions have dominated critical examinations of poor Miss Finch. Collins's medical knowledge in poor Miss Finch is significant as the novel attempts to present conditions that are not outside the realm of possibility, despite being employed in the service of a sensational plot. Collins's biographer, Catherine Peters, explains that the author clearly did his medical research, most likely modeling Oscar's condition, on patients mentioned in Thomas Watson's uh, Lectures on the Principle and Practice, uh, Practice of Physic, 1857. In his lectures, Watson details the case of one of his patients suffering from epilepsy who was going black in the face and foaming at the mouth, which are, as Catherine Peters notes, symptoms that Collins avoids giving to Oscar because he's only interested in blue skin discoloration. Peters notes that, quote, the scene in which Oscar suffers his first fit is expressed in terms which are vividly poetic rather than clinical, end quote. In other words, while Collins understood the medical details, he chooses to concentrate on sensationalizing Oscar's illness for effect, rather than sticking too closely to an accurate medical description of what happens during a seizure. Collins writes that Oscar's body, quote, retched round as if giant hands had twisted it, end quote, a description that adds a sensational and visual play on the convulsing body during an epileptic fit. These details suggest that Collins was more focused on the disfiguring effect of blue skin than clinical symptoms of foaming at the mouth and therefore chose to emphasize only this particular side effect of using silver nitrate to cheat epileptic fits. While Collins's dedication to scientific and medical accuracy in his description of how silver nitrate causes blue skin is important, it is also important to note that Collins is more focused on the blue effect of Oscar's skin color. Existing scholarship on poor Miss Finch has tended to downplay or even deny the importance of Oscar's blue skin color. Samuel Lyndon Gladden, for example, claims in uh, that in the course of the novel, quote, uh, blueness is unmasked as meaningless and functions as an empty signifier for a whole range of undesirable illnesses, end quote. Unlike Gladden, who argues that Oscar's blueness is arbitrary, Jessica Durgan and Lillian Nader do discuss Oscar's blue uh, skin color and its racial implications in the novel. Durgan makes connections between blueness uh, and Indian ethnicity making the case that from the blue or black face of the Hindu god Krishna and Vishnu to the blue color dye of indigo, blueness is an important association for Indian culture. Durgan argues that, quote, blue was therefore used, uh, useful and simply slippery uh, as a signifier of otherness, perfect for indirectly addressing Collins's ongoing concerns regarding racial prejudice in Britain's treatment of its imperial subjects. Specifically, that the hue is a technique employed by the author to incorporate India into the margins of the narrative, end quote. In her chapter, Blue Like Me, Collins, Poor Miss Finch, and the Construction of Racial Identity, Nader similarly explores the connection between blueness and India. She points out that, quote, treating Oscar's change in pigmentation as if it were a transformation in race, Collins considers the way in which racial identity is socially constructed in Victorian culture while also suggesting that racial difference is a disfigurement of sorts, end quote. Collectively, these scholars suggest Collins is interested in the social implications of dark skin color, rather than being up to date with contemporary medical science. Poor Miss Finch is therefore a novel more interested in race than in medical accuracy. 
Blue discoloration was actually important in discussions of race in Victorian Britain in one important context, the cholera epidemics. The cholera epidemics that plagued Britain in the mid uh, 19th century were represented by blue bodies. Blue discoloration being a bodily symptom of cholera, which agitated Britain's fear of Indian immigrants because India had the initial outbreaks of the highly contagious and deadly disease. Cholera first came to Britain in 1831 and the four major outbreaks happened in 1831 to 32, 1848 to 49, 1853 to 54, and 1866. Although there were other significant outbreaks uh, in between these years, such as the 1854 Broad Street Cholera outbreak from a public water pump in Soho. Also known as the Blue Death, cholera is an infectious uh, cholera bacterium, which attacks the body's nervous system, draining the body of fluids so the skin pigmentation turns blue, purple, or even black. Here we see the appearance after uh, death of a victim to what they call Indian cholera, uh, referred to as Indian cholera here, which shows physical effects of cholera on a sufferer during the first cholera epidemic that plagued Britain in the 1830s. In the illustration, the woman's face is sunken and thinner, her skin and lips an ashen blue color. Oscar is similarly described. His body grew thinner and paler because of his epileptic fits. Oscar's body physically resembles that of a cholera patient as he gets very sick, displaying many of the same symptoms as someone infected with cholera. However, Collins did not want Oscar to die like the, infected, uh, the cholera infected patients, which supports Peter's argument that Collins is more interested in the blue disfiguring effect. While there were four major cholera epidemics that plagued Britain, the first epidemic in 1831 is crucial in understanding British racial prejudice and fear of the disease Indian bodies that lasted into the early 1900s. In Cholera and Nation, Doctoring the Social Body in Victoria, England, Pamela K. Gilbert notes that, quote, by the fourth epidemic, cholera was insistently racialized in medical discourse. Racial thinking had swept Europe at this point, and Britain in particular was beginning to take a racist turn in response to specific challenges emerging in the empire, especially the Indian Mutiny Rebellion of 1857." End quote. It is significant that poor Miss Fitch is set in 1858, one year after the Indian Mutiny of 1857. A rebellion against the, East British, uh, the British East India Company generated by economic and religious frictions during Britain's area of colonial expansion. The mutiny was sparked by sepoy or native soldiers in the Bengal army who were supplied with gunpowder uh, cartridges made of cow and sow fat, which they were required to bite in order to load. This sparked a dispute as beef and pig fat is forbidden by the predominant Hindu and Muslim religions in India. The mutiny was considered as Christine Bolt in Victorian Attitudes to Race puts it, uh, quote, a monstrous shock to the complacent British community in India as a sign of divine displeasure, end quote. Bengal army soldiers, British soldiers, and women and children were killed in the rebellion. As a result, the mutiny was represented as a savage attack by British newspapers of the time, despite how violent and uncont uh, uncontrollable the fighting was on both sides. Cholera was also particularly prevalent during the mutiny of 1857. Anne Faherty writes, quote, as the leading cause of death among British troops in India, Cholera earned itself a reputation as an insidious, violent enemy, always ready to attack. The British viewed Indians and their very loose habits as the natural cause of the disease." End quote. The British believed cholera was an inherently Indian disease because of its origin and the unhealthy sanitation practices of Indian people as reported by English missionaries, soldiers, and journalists. Sanitation in Britain in this period was also poor. While the British public was taking necessary steps to uh, curb the spread of cholera, reports claim that Indians did not share the same health concerns and hygienic practices. For example, George Johnson, MD, who observed Indian bathing practices complained that, quote, in the Ganges, bathers immerse clothing and bodies in water and also take water in their mouths and spit it out for uh, the use of other bathers, end quote. The British press often represented India as a dirty place and a breeding ground for disease and the reports indicate the way in which Indians were represented as savage or barbaric to the British people. The 1848 Public Health Act, which was revised in 1858, just after the rebellion, prompted by Edwin Chadwick's report on the sanitary conditions of the laboring classes, now set England apart from India. 
It reads, quote, while the home country was taking steps to bring filth and disease under control, India was viewed as stagnant and lacking self-discipline, like the immature child of the great uh, British parent. In this climate, cholera came to realizing the aspects of Indian society most feared by Europeans. From this point on, to British eyes, India was increasingly a place of barbarism, end quote. In this illustration, the, London illustra uh, the Illustrated London News depicts the blue tinge and black-blue hues of skin color on the native soldiers in their national costume. The soldiers in the illustration are not using the controversial Enfield rifle, whose cow and sow fat made cartridge uh, spark the Indian Mutiny Rebellion. Instead, they're holding bows and a shield. The picture represents Indian soldiers sort of less civilized and barbaric because they are not using the British-supplied firearms. In this illustration, John Bull, a national personification representing Britain, is protecting the country from a blue-skinned, cholera-infected Indian. The British public certainly feared Indian immigrants would bring cholera to the country, despite cholera already being there. So public health notices uh, were made to warn and reassure the British public that they were being protected from the dreaded Indian disease. However, these notices were highly exaggerated, which fed into an increasing amount of racial stereotyping of Indian immigrants, uh, as so apparent in the strikingly blue body of the Indian, whose neck is tightly held by John Bull. The Indian body was therefore feared by the British because of the connection to cholera, and the diseased Indian body comes to be represented as a blue body like Oscar's. Considering the novel, novel's interest in race, blue color, and the historical relevancy to the mut mutiny, it is probable that Oscar's blueness was informed by discussions of cholera and the racial prejudice against dark-skinned bodies. While his blueness is the result of medical treatment rather than ethnic difference, Oscar's blue skin effectively racializes him. His blue body provides a stark physical difference to the novel's mostly white characters, especially in contrast with the creamy complexion of his twin brother Nugent, and as shown in this frontispiece. The novel also emphasizes the link between Oscar's dark blue skin and non-white skin in general through a dinner party scene. In this scene, the novel's heroine, Lucilla Finch, is horrified and disgusted by the presence of a man with non-white skin, a Hindu gentleman, with whom she must sit next to at dinner. Lucilla's anxieties are amplified by the fact that this dark-skinned Hindu man touches her, which is a hygienic anxiety relating back to the fear of cholera and disease. The scene echoes Lucilla's horror as she first witnesses Oscar's blue skin, who resembles a cholera-infected body. Indeed, in the mid-Victorian period, Oscar's blue-black color would have had specific geographical and political connotations for its first readers, as this publication followed a period when the skin color was specifically associated with cholera-infected Indians who had been blamed for the many cholera epidemics of the early 19th century. If we place Oscar's blue body against the cultural challenges of the time, such as racial prejudice, disease, and the representation and treatment of racially other bodies, the significance of blueness becomes clearer. Oscar, uh, Oscar's identity as the blue man represents the blue bodies of cholera-infected Indian immigrants. Of course, there is another context in which Oscar's characterization as a blue man resonates. A widespread fascination with exotic people, dark skin color, and bodily anomalies was exacerbated in the entertainment industry. Exotic performers were employed or immigrated to Britain to be exhibited in freak shows, shown as wonders of the world, of various skin color and physical deformities. Indeed, their skin color was central to their ability to attract an audience. Bodies that were racially other were marked by their exotic color and origin. Victorian freak shows displayed among many types, racially other bodies of different skin color and ethnic backgrounds, which were coded as freaks. The freak was simultaneously prejudiced against, but also gazed and gawked at by spectators who were fascinated by bodily difference. In Spectacle of Deformity, Freak Shows, uh, and Modern British Culture, Naja Durbach argues that, quote, by exploring the imprint of class, gender, sex, race, and ethnic difference on the body, Freak Shows helped to articulate the cultural meanings invested in otherness. And this uh, and thus clarified what it meant to be British at a moment in which Britain was constructing itself as a modern imperial and thus model nation, end quote. Victorian freak performers were exhibited and exploited on stage, especially those of exotic skin color who came or were often forcibly brought to Britain 
from other parts of the world. While the freak show displayed many dark-skinned foreign performers, Indian performers in particular had a distinct place in the Victorian iteration of these performances. Their racial identity and usually embellished stories of exotic and uncivilized origin resonated with Britain's prejudice against Indians. And this made Indian people popular spectacles on the freak show stage. Kanpur, India was the birthplace of one of the best known freak performers in this period, Muhammad Bao, the miniature man of India, also known as the Indian dwarf. In this photograph, Bao is standing 37 inches tall, displayed at London's Great Exhibition of 1851. What separated Bao from other dwarves who were already well known in freak show exhibitions, such as Tom Thumb, Princess Lottie, and Prince Midge, was his dark skin color and foreign birthplace. In her essay, Empire in the Indian Freak, Marlene Tromp points out that, quote, race and, uh, race and ethnicity were profound markers of their perceived dissimilarity from the English viewing audience, end quote. Muhammad Bao was a freak, not just because of his physical difference, but also because of his exotic skin color and Indian racial identity. Together, these physical and cultural differences uh, made Bao more of a commercial draw compared to the white-skinned dwarves such as Tom Thumb. As Trump writes, quote, Muhammad Bao's advertisement evoked the thrill and novelty of difference through his Indianness and his racialized infreakment, end quote. In his display as an exotic other, Bao's racial difference was treated as if it was just as freakish as his deformed body. Because Bao was a popular spectacle due to his foreign status and physical freakishness, he's an important example in understanding Oscar's blue body as a freak body. And it's clear that Collins is drawing on models from the culture he was living in, in this case, the dark-skinned body anomalies displayed in freak shows. Therefore, Oscar's blueness is not arbitrary. Rather, his blueness is a direct representation of British racial prejudice against India, as expressed in the fear of cholera-infected Indian immigrants and the exploitation of Indian freaks in the freak show. Considering Collins's interest in color transformation and the socio-historic relevance of the Indian mutiny of 1857 and the freak show, I argue Collins was making intentional parallels between cholera infection and unusual pigmentation in Oscar's freakish body. Thank you. Thanks so much, Esther, um, for that. That was really fascinating. And I really, really enjoyed your slideshow as well, full of really great illustrations and, and cartoons added so much to your, to your talk. So thanks so much for sharing that with us. Um, I'm just giving Reb a minute there to set up her slideshow before I pass over to her. Um, so Reb, we're ready to go whenever you are. All right, are we ready? Yep, go for it. Thank you. All right, so I'll just dive right in. Um, all right. Charles Dickens is one of the most well-known writers of children and childhood in the 19th century. And many of his novels depict children as vulnerable or victimized characters. When we think of the more famous of Dickens literary children, we typically think of characters such as Oliver Twist, Little Nell, or Paul Dombey. These children are beautiful, good, and innocent, what we might call an angelic version of childhood. The angelic child, according to Naomi Wood, is one who represents, quote, uncorrupted nature and spiritual truth beyond material, end quote. And the dying child, especially in Dickens fiction, particularly follows this definition. However, in his novel Bleak House, serialized from 1852 to 1853, the emblematic innocent dying child, a young crossing sweep named Joe, presents a more human or realistic version of childhood that responds to the novel's portrayal of the city. This presentation explores Joe's physical characteristics and his relationship to Dickens' criticism and reaction towards sanitation reform in the novel. Dickens treats Joe's body in a drastically different way from other innocent child characters in that he identifies Joe with dirt instead of purity. Consequently, Bleak House Society treats Joe like dirt in quite a literal sense. As both a child and an embodiment of sanitary concerns, Joe holds a rather complex position as both a threat to and victim of society. 
Joe's character in Bleak House is presented as rather simplistic and critical analyses of Joe and Joe's death tend to focus on the boy as a symbolic representation of a marginalized disenfranchised population instead of the nature of his childhood. Scholars such as Trevor Blount, H.M. Delensky, and Olga Stukabrokov, for example, explain Joel's role in the novel as a social symbol and victim. And as Jonathan Loesberg summarizes, quote, to belabor the obvious, Joe represents an indigence that his society causes but cannot respond to, end quote. Joe's an orphan. He is wholly uneducated and has no known background, not even a last name. He barely makes a living sweeping the crossing, and he relies on the infrequent acts of charity by a few good-natured characters. Rejected by society for reasons out of his control and beyond his understanding, he eventually catches a disease and infects the novel's female protagonist, Esther Summerson, with smallpox. Before he dies, 20 chapters from the novel's end. He first appears at the inquest into the death of his friend Nemo, looking, quote, very muddy, very hoarse, very ragged, end quote. And despite Joe's filthy outer appearance, Dickens highlights his basic inner goodness and innocence. He is honest and grateful for what he has. And when Joe comments on the kindness Nemo once showed to him, the narrator reacts to say, quote, there's something like a distant ray of light in my muttered reasons for this, end quote. Joe's innocence, though different from what we might typically expect in the dying Dickensian child, fuels the critical characterizations of Joe as a victim of social injustices. Though I argue that Joe's characterization and the way in which Dickens identifies Joe with dirt complicates his relationship to society as both a victim and threat. Society in Bleak House can't recognize Joe's innocence and instead treats Joe like dirt, as something repulsive and to be removed for the safety of others. This treatment is reflected in the way in which Dickens incorporates Joe into some of the major social issues that he tackles in Bleak House, primarily the proper removal of dirt and dead bodies as part of sanitation reform. The 19th century witnessed epidemics, several epidemics, cholera, tuberculosis, smallpox, to name a few, and these diseases were believed at the time to originate from the polluted air or from particles from dirt and decaying matter. Dirt was dangerous to Victorians. It covered the streets in excess, and as journalist Henry Mayhew describes in detail, dirt consisted, consisted of dangerous matters such as dust, refuse, street sewage, and rotting animal excrement, the same matter that produced foul odors and disease-causing particles. Social reformer Edwin Chadwick, in his 1842 report on the sanitary conditions of the laboring populations of Great Britain, strongly criticized the improper state of sanitary conditions, including drainage, sewage, street cleaning, dirt and refuse removal, overcrowded living conditions, poor ventilation and foul odors. And he claimed that, quote, the annual loss of life from filth and bad ventilation are greater than the loss from death or wounds in any wars in which the country has been engaged in modern times, end quote. Slums in particular, uh, the homes of the poorest classes were especially prone to outbursts of epidemics and disease because they were generally the dirtiest and most unsanitary parts of the city. In an 1849 article for the Morning Chronicle, Mayhew attributed the most recent cholera epidemic to the filth and corruption around the metropolis, while Chadwick accuses slums for being, quote, the foci of contagious disease within the district, end quote. One specific branch of sanitation reform was burial reform, as the rising awareness of improper or abusive burial practices issued similar concerns about disease and dirt. From the early to mid-19th century, reports about overcrowded churchyards and their effect on public health emerged to encourage burial reform, such as the surgeon George Alfred Walker's gatherings from graveyards in 1839 and the General Board of Health's 1851 report on a general scheme of extramural sepulture for country towns. Where Chadwick describes slums as the foci of disease, Walker's report accuses churchyards to be the, quote, national evils, the harbingers, if not the originators, of pestilence, end quote. He observed several churchyards, such as the Portugal Street Burying Ground, Enon Chapel, and St. Giles Burying Ground, and their failure to properly separate the living from the dead, exposing bones, coffins, or miasma to the open air thereby emitting toxic odors and spreading disease and contagion to the living. F.S. Schwartzbach notes that by 1851, a year before Big House was written, 
Dickens was frustrated with the General Board of Health's failure to commit to effective sanitation reform. And in Bleak House, he seems to vent this frustration onto his descriptions of the deplorable, unsanitary conditions of the London city. Joe is a child of the slum called Tom All Alone's, a perfect example of Chadwick's complaint about slums as the foci of disease. Tom All Alone's is a, quote, black, dilapidated street avoided by all decent people. Now these tumbling tenements contain by night a swarm of misery. As on the ruined human wretch, vermin parasites appear, so these ruined shelters have bred a crowd of foul existence that crawls in and out of gaps in walls and boards, fetching and carrying fever, unquote. Dickens doesn't stop at containing disease within the slum, however, but later directly states that the failure to enact sanitation reform and improve conditions will bring dire consequences to all facets of society. He writes that in Parliament, there has been, quote, much mighty speech making and wrathful disputation about how Tom shall be got right, end quote. But as words fail to bring action, Tom, quote, has his revenge. There's not a drop of Tom's corrupted blood, but propagates infection and contagion somewhere. It shall pollute this very night the choice stream of a Norman house, and his grace shall not be able to say nay to the infamous alliance, end quote. Without actual sanitation reform, diseases generally specific to the lower classes will seemingly have their own revenge to infiltrate middle-class spaces and infect middle-class bodies. Dickens' description of the churchyard also reacts to contemporary issues towards burial reform and public health. Like the churchyards in Walker's report, Dickens' churchyard spreads disease to the living, as he describes that it is, quote, pestiferous and obscene, whence malignant diseases are communicated to the bodies of our dear brothers and sisters who have not departed, end quote. More specifically, when Joe goes to find Nemo's grave, he points to it, quote, there over yinder, among them piles of bones and close to that their kitchen window. They put a wary knife at the top. They was obliged to stamp upon it to get it in, end quote. This setting closely resembles different observations Walker makes on the various churchyards in his report. Moreover, Joe's comment about stamping upon Nemo's body to get it to fit into the grave mirrors a comment made by a grave digger in an 1850 article in the Times about Spafield's burial grounds. The grave digger in this article revealed that he often had to jump on the old bodies in order to make space for the new ones. Overcrowded churchyards like the ones uh, Dickens and Walker describe meant the corpses had no spaces of their own and couldn't be separated from the spaces of the living. Bodies were just as dangerous as dirt, but without proper reforms for removing the dead from these spaces, they continued to threaten public health. Dickens refers to the issues surrounding dirt, sanitation, and churchyards all throughout Bleak House, but he transfers the fear that is normally attributed to these conditions onto Joe. Joe, therefore, embodies dirt and decay in that he is a repulsive figure who must be removed to protect healthy living bodies. Mary Douglas calls dirt, quote, matter out of place. It is never a unique isolated event. Where there is dirt, there is system. Dirt is the byproduct of a systematic ordering and classification of matter insofar as ordering involves rejecting inappropriate elements, end quote. Joe, therefore, like dirt, presents a threat to the social order as matter out of place. He explains to Esther that the people around him keep him moving on, despite his having nowhere to go. He says, quote, I have been moved on and moved on, more nor ever I was afore, and they're all a-watching and a-driving me. Every one of them's doing it, from the time when I don't get up to the time when I don't go to bed, end quote. We see him first being moved on at the inquest on Nemo, when the high chancellor deems Joe ineligible as a witness because he is ignorant of Christianity, he is quickly, quote, put aside to the great edification of the audience, end quote. In this instance, the court treats Joe as a moral contagion, as if his ignorance, like disease, will infect those around him. He must therefore be put aside and quarantined in order to protect other seemingly healthy bodies and minds. Lady Dedlock similarly finds Joe repulsive and dangerous. When she enlists Joe to show her Nemo's grave through the churchyard gate, she instinctively, quote, shrinks into a corner, into a corner of that hideous archway with its deadly stains contaminating her dress and putting out her two hands and passionately telling him to keep away from her, for he is loathsome to her, end quote. 
Despite the contaminated and corrupted conditions of the churchyard, Lady Dedlock sees Joe as the more dangerous entity that threatens her safety. Continually put aside, rejected, and moved on, Joe never seems to find where his place is, and therefore embodies dirt in that he exists in society as matter that always remains out of place. As an embodiment of dirt then, Joe also threatens the social order as a carrier of disease and contagion. When Joe gets sick, the specifics of Joe's illness remains unclear, though scholars such as Susan Shadow suggest that he most likely has pulmonary tuberculosis, a, a disease primarily native to slums. Dickens doesn't specify whether Joe's illness originates in the slum or in the churchyard. Both are likely culprits, but Joe's disease does in fact perpetuate fears associated with dirt when he brings the disease from the lowest classes into middle-class spaces. Sabine Schulting classifies dirt as a marker of class. Dirt not only pollutes streets and domestic spaces, but also crosses the boundaries between the middle class and their social and cultural others by threatening to, quote, infect, infect middle-class bodies with the diseases of the poor, end quote. In this sense, Joe embodies the fear of dirt when he infects the middle-class body of Esther Summerson with smallpox after she tries to help him, and even more so when this infection scars Esther's face. Joe's role in causing Esther's disease and facial scarring plays into society's worst fears about dirt and the life-altering diseases that potentially threaten the existing social order should legislation fail to establish proper reform measures. Joe exemplifies the fears and concerns surrounding dirt, decay, and disease within society, but his own body undergoes the very real experience of suffering disease. Dickens often describes Joe's body according to his symptoms, but this differs from Dickens' usual treatment of the dying child's body. Generally, children's deathbed scenes in 19th century fiction are notable for how they inspire pathos or sympathy for the dying child. They aren't so notable for being conscious of medical accuracy. Writers often subjected the dying child to diseases or injuries that exhibited no real symptoms. As Lawrence Lerner notes, the child will usually waste away slowly as a highly spiritualized figure of pathos or as a way to reflect on one's own suffering. Tuberculosis, for example, was incredibly popular in fictionalized deathbed scenes for children and young people. Pat Allen writes that despite being one of the most widespread killers of the 19th century, tuberculosis was, quote, romanticized by early and mid-Victorian poets artists and novelists who depicted consumptives as young, beautiful, innocent, and frequently female, end quote. The writer's priority then when writing the child's death isn't usually the physical experience of dying and children either don't suffer or suffer very little despite the cause of death. The romanticism of tuber tuberculosis, for example, can be applied to Helen Burns and Charlotte, Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. Young Jane sees that on Helen's deathbed, her face is, quote, pale, wasted, but quite composed. She looks so little changed that her fear of her death was instantly dissipated, end quote. Helen's body hardly shows the symptoms of consumption. And while the scene does include one fit of coughing, the focus remains on Helen's faith-driven acceptance of death and Jane's refusal of it. Dickens follows a similar, the similar pattern in his novels, The Old Curiosity Shop and Dombey and Son both published before Bleak House. Nell Trent and Paul Dombey die of unnamed causes and their bodies undergo no real physical change as they approach death, despite the many obstacles they may face. Nell's body is so unchanged that her grandfather mistakes her death for sleep and warns the others not to wake her. Paul, on the other hand, though said to be very ill, spends a majority of his deathbed scene happily bidding farewell to those around him until death finally takes him. This tendency to maintain the dying child's symptom-free body from life into death follows more romantic versions of childhood that aim to preserve the child's beauty and innocent nature through death. But this preservation relies on the child's body remaining pure and unchanged, meaning writers would romanticize disease and ignore more realistic depictions of the dying child's suffering and symptoms. With Joe, however, Dickens refuses to romanticize or idealize disease and instead describes his symptoms as painful and physically corrupting. When he first becomes ill, Joe describes his symptoms to Esther. He says, quote, I'm a being froze and then burnt up and then froze and then burnt up ever so many times in an hour. And my head's all sleepy and all going mad like, and I'm so dry and my bones isn't half so much bones as pain, end quote. 
Dickens later includes symptoms like an irregular appetite, breath that rattles in his lungs, and quote, involuntary shakings of his head and heavings of his chest, end quote. Eventually, Dickens moves from the actual experience of the symptoms to show how they physically appear on his body. Joe's face is hollow with an emaciated glare in his eyes. And the narrator describes Joe as, quote, dirty, ugly, disagreeable to all senses, embody a common creature of the common streets, holy and solely heathen. Homely filth begrimes him, homely parasites devour him, homely sores are in him, homely rags are on him, end quote. Such is the physical toll on Joe's body that by the end, his body not only changes, but seems to decay. Close to Joe's final moments, Dickens pictures him, quote, like a growth of fungus or any unwholesome excrescence produced there in neglect and impurity, end quote. Much of the language surrounding Joe in this scene indicates putrefaction and decomposition. He has an emaciated and hollow figure, clothes that, quote, look in color and in substance like a bundle of rank leaves of swampy growth that rotted long ago. And he leans against a hoarding, a hoarding of decaying timber, end quote. Here Dickens escalates the severity of Joe's symptoms with the imagery of decaying matter and pushes the correlation between Joe and dirt to a comparison between Joe and the corpse. Joe therefore is not just matter out of place, but also a body out of place, but like the bodies in the churchyard invade the spaces of the living. Joe's relationship to society in Bleak House reflects the fears and discourses on sanitation and burial reform prevalent to the time in which Dickens wrote the novel. Dirt and decay were dangerous and Joe as matter and body out of place Friends, public health, and the existing social order when he spreads his disease into the middle-class home and body of Esther. But as the child, he's also a victim to the same threat of sanitation, as well as a social order that fails to act on it. This dichotomy makes for a more com complex relationship between society and the child. And while Dickens employs a more realistic version of childhood in his depiction of Joe, the human child becomes near inhuman as an embodiment of dirt and disease instead of childlike purity. And this denies him the generally symptom-free experience of the innocent dying child. Thank you. Great, thanks so much, um, Reb, for that. That was really, really interesting. And um, so thanks to both our speakers there. I'm really struck by, firstly, the parallels between both of your both of your presentations about that the conflict between representation and, and medical accuracy, um, which sort of surfaced in both, but also how sort of, I suppose, um, apt both talks were for, for the ages that we're living. And I suppose like a lot of people have been drawing a lot of parallels, but really this idea of contagion and infectious disease and public health um, and sanitation, um, Reb, that, that surfaced in your talk, they're just so relevant for right now. Um, but do please keep asking Q, uh, questions in the Q&A box. We've got a couple um, to get started with. But I wondered if I could just cheekily um, get in with one of my own before we do some of the um, audience's questions. Um, and it's actually for Esther. Um, and I was just really interested, Esther, and I know this is a theme in your in your thesis in general, but um, were there any examples of, of real life um, uh, freak show performers that that took silver nitrate um, in order to get blue skin? Yeah, actually, um, this was kind of a, when I was first researching and, and trying to find if there were examples that Collins was specifically drawing on. Um, I found that I couldn't I couldn't find any until later in in the time period, right? So after Poor Miss Finch was written, um, the example that comes to mind is uh, there's a man named Captain Fred Walters, um, and you can find information about him on humanmarvels.com. Uh, Captain Fred Walters uh, deliberately ingested uh, copious amounts of silver nitrate to turn his skin blue, and then he uh, moved uh, to uh, Coney Island. Um, and was in P.T. Barnum's uh, traveling, uh, freak shows and traveling circus. Um, it actually killed him, um, this uh, over ingestion of silver nitrate over time. Um, so yeah, I had to look, uh, you, you know, for examples, of course, within the time period or, or before uh, Poor Miss Fitch was written. Um, so, uh, you know, that's where the connection with um, Indian and, and the freak body and cholera uh, came through. But yeah, so the actual examples uh, of, of stark blue bodies and physical difference in that respect 
uh, were much later than the novel. Right, that's that's really interesting. Thanks for that. And um, I have um, a question for each of you here um, in the Q and A box, um, and they're both from Orla Donnelly. Uh, so thanks for your questions, Orla. Um, so I'll just the first one is to Esther, and that's: Do you think that Collins's own cranial disfigurement affected his treatment of physical deformity in his fiction? And then the question um, for Reb, which you might think about while, while Esther answers, um, is with themes of illegitimate children, murder, mistaken identities, and considering the detective element, would you call Bleak House a sensation novel? Um, so Esther, if I could come to you first. Yep, thanks for the question, Orla. Um, yes, certainly. Collins had a number of physical ailments that many scholars, uh, including his, his own, one of his biographers, Catherine Peters notes, um, his physical ailments, he did have a cranial uh, deformity, sort of an indent, um, as well as uh, I would say something that affected him more so um, is his rheumatic gout. Uh, he would often lose his eyesight temporarily. Um, he wasn't able to walk or travel. Um, and he's very transparent about his, uh, you know, physical deformities and ailments in, in his personal letters. Um, so yeah, I would say there is a, you know, an element, um, uh, you know, that he is, is drawing on maybe his own life experiences um, in sort of maybe having a, a sympathetic nature towards, um, you know, people with uh, physical deformities and in his characters that he's writing. Great, thanks. And Rev, could I come to you? Yeah, so the question was whether Bleak House could be considered a sensational novel. Yeah. Um, if I'm remembering correctly, the um, actual idea of sensational novel didn't become popular until the 1860s, I think, and Bleak House was in 1852. But it does have a lot of elements of, I think, sensationalism in it. Um, I mean, obviously, the idea of murder, illegitimate families, um, like premarital love affairs, um, all those are kind of interesting topics to kind of think about and write about in the novel. So um, I don't know if I would specifically call it a sensational novel, but it does have elements I think that could easily apply to it, yeah. Okay, and, and so if, if it's sort of to be seen as, as slightly before sensational novel, I have a question again, uh, uh, Reb, sorry, um, for you, and this question's from Maggie, and she's interested in how long this um, romanticized um, consult consumptive child lasts in literature. Um, so she was thinking specifically of the example of Ruby Gillis dying in Anne of the Island from um, one of the Anne of the Green Gables books, um, which was published in 1915, she thinks. so. Uh, she was wondering if you have any thoughts about that um, sort of Victorian residue making its way into frontier fiction. Mm. I'm not too familiar with frontier fiction, so I'm not necessarily sure about that. Um, but tuberculosis as a sort of romantic way to die was definitely very prevalent in, um, like from the late 18th century at least to like middle, 19th century. And a lot of this had to do with sort of, especially with child deaths, it had to do with the sort of romantic construction of the child. Um, you know, tuberculosis was seen as a, like a way to prolong the dying process, which um, also contributed to ideas of the Ars Moriendi or the art of dying well, um, which was basically guidelines on how to um, basically spend your deathbed preparing yourself for heaven and the afterlife. Um, and so tuberculosis as a sort of prolonged way to die um, was a very interesting way of doing this. So it was quite popular. It happens with children. It more specifically happens for young people and young adults. Um, so yeah, I guess that's my answer to that question. Yeah, thank you. Um, Esther, I have a question for you, and um, I was wondering, um, following you, you talking about the, the real-life example there of the performer who died from um, silver nitrate, um, I, I was sort of wondering what level of, of agency did freak show performers have in terms of, like, 
was it economically profitable for them or or were they being totally and utterly exploited? Because I am I seem to remember in a, in a post-colonialism seminar years and years ago talking about those um, like model model tribal villages and I think the Great Exhibition in London. So I was wondering, like, did the performers themselves make money from this or were they sort of taken to perform for other people's economic gain? Maybe you could talk a bit more about the freak show. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, a great question. So there's really two sides of the coin here, right? So there's some scholars argue that, you know, there were certain performers like the Aztec children um, who are a brother and sister um, who were essentially sold into, um, into, into freak shows. Um, they had stage marriage um, and there was very sort of embellished stories um, uh, about them to get that, you know, the sort of sensational effect of, about their um, background um, and, and, and origin. Um, the other side of that is, you know, certain freak show performers uh, were very wealthy. Tom Thumb made a great living uh, being a freak show performer. Um, there was also Joseph Merrick, the elephant man is a great example. Before he was in freak shows, he was rolling cigars uh, in a factory. And, you know, that wasn't a very profitable life for him. But once he, uh, you know, came into the freak show, um, he, you know, he was making a good living. So it's, uh, you know, there's, there's two sides of the coin, I would say to that. So I think, you know, many freak show performers had the experience of, uh, you know, having a good living and, and making money, uh, despite this sort of exploitation that was going on. Um, but other ones were definitely uh, forcibly uh, sold. Um, if you watch uh, Todd Browning's Freaks uh, is a good, um, very quite difficult to watch, but a good example of, of you know, that the sort of some that were brought um, or forcibly used in, in freak shows and also um, the, uh, uh, the other side of this, that the people who were making good money from that. That's brilliant. Um, I, I also have Esther to stay with you and um, what, what Bernice Murphy is calling a poplet tangent. Um, so she says that your paper reminded her um, that in the famous graphic novel Watchmen, there's an all powerful character called Dr. Manhattan, who was blue uh, because he fell into a nuclear reactor. Um, and his blueness becomes a, a big visual means of underlining his difference from humanity. And she says that even his, his speech bubbles are blue. So um, Bernice was wondering about this sense of, of being blue as a sign of difference more generally in literature and pop culture and whether you had any thoughts on, on that. Yeah, I for, yeah, that's funny, Bernice. I kind of forgot about um, this uh, Dr. Manhattan. I took a graphic novels class actually in community college so, and, and, and read through that. So um, thanks for that reminder. Um, I haven't really thought about it uh, more generally in, in lit and pop culture, because I've sort of been focused on the sensationalized version of these. Um, so I will stew on that. So thanks for that. <laughs> um, and Reb, to, to sort of come back to that, that idea of, um, I suppose, money and monetary gain that, that Esther was talking about, I was really struck by you sort of highlighting the, the class dynamics in Bleak House and the crossover from sort of slums to a middle-class home of disease. Um, and I was wondering, I sort of have maybe two parts of this, if you could talk more about whether there was a, a specifically democratic resonance to the churchyard um, in Bleak House or in sort of Victorian literature or culture more generally. And is the facial scarring that Esther um, sustains is that a call for legislation around sanitation or is it presented or could it be seen as a sort of class revenge or is that just my sort of willful Marxist reading of it? No, so it, it's an interesting point. Um, I mean, this is all kind of in relation to, um, you know, middle class ideas about hygiene and poverty, um, but then also a connection between hygiene and sort of a moral character. Um, so people who particularly lived in the slums, you know, they lived in rooms that had both men, women, and children in the same rooms, you know, kind of all spread throughout disease. There was a lot of 
dirt in these places, you know, you couldn't keep a place clean. Um, and middle class values very much were about hygiene and um, kind of maintaining moral values within that domestic space. Um, so I'm trying to remember exactly what the question was. In terms of, um, you know, the churchyard, that was very much just, um, you know, protecting the spaces of the living. It wasn't more a class situation than just a, a health issue. I'm sure someone could talk about class and churchyards. Um, although the churchyard in Dickens Bleak House is part of like the pauper's graveyard. So Nima was a poor man who was a law writer who died of an opium overdose. And so he was given a pauper's burial. Um, and those were particularly awful in terms of graveyard burial practices. Um, so in one sense, it could be a bit democratic. Um, but it's also, you know, Dickens specifically said, you know, Parliament keeps talking about sanitation reform and churchyard reform and nothing's being done about it. And in the meantime, the lower classes are kind of infiltrating middle class values with disease. Um, so it's, it's kind of one way to look at it. Yes, yeah. Okay, thank you. That's, yeah, that's really interesting that the sort of, yeah, I suppose even who, who gets to live and, and like the, the idea of cramming bodies and stamping on them to fit them all into the grave seems to jar quite a lot with this. Um, I'm not a Victorianist, but I, I suppose what I would associate with the, the sort of religious piety and you know, that this sacrility of death, you know, it seems to be flown in the face of by this like stamping of bodies into, into mass graves. And I was wondering how, like, how did society metabolize that um, sort of, you know, conflict or how is it presented? Yeah, so the stamping of bodies, like the treatment of bodies, um, you know, this was kind of the age when, you know, religion was still very much a part of considering um, death in the afterlife, but then you're kind of also getting into um, more scientific views of the body. And so, um, you know, even then it's a sort of consideration of, you know, how well should the body be treated after death? Um, and you sort of get into issues of, you know, that's another sort of class and poverty issue. A lot of poor people couldn't afford to bury their loved ones for a week or so um, because they couldn't quite afford a funeral, a funeral yet. Um, and they were more, like, more likely to have pauper's burials, um, which were more susceptible to, you know, perhaps your body might get stamped on or, you know, there were also abuses where, you know, limbs were getting dismembered in order to fit bodies into coffins. So, you know, no one wants to hear that, you know, their body might be potentially dismembered in order to make room for, you know, other dead people. Um, so this was kind of a topic, especially in burial reforms that started this um, sparing of the cemetery or the public graveyard, because churchyards are very much part of the parish. Um, so this kind of incited um, ideas of cemeteries rather than just churchyards. Um, that answer your question? I feel like I got off topic. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that, I was sort of rambling myself, but I'm just seeing there's a comment here from Reed Doherty who says that the uh, George Walker's um, gatherings from graveyards is, is uh, interesting regarding the upper class burials um, versus everyone else's burials and burial grounds. Um, so maybe I'll look into that. But um, I just wanted to come back to, to Esther um, about the topic of blueness again, if you wanted to expand on that. Yeah, I just, uh, to sort of um, answer Bernice's question, um, I was just sitting here thinking about, you know, blueness in, in, in the mid 19th century and even, you know, moving into the, uh, uh, let's see, mid 1800s to early 1900s. And when we see like these blue characters, right? Um, there's sort of a, a negative connotation that's always um, attached to, to freak show uh, performers and members. Um, 
when we were talking about Dr. Manhattan, I was also thinking about Beast and Mystique, uh, blue characters from X-Men. And it seems like in popular culture um, and literature or film that th there seems to be, like you, you said about Dr. Manhattan, an all-powerful uh, character uh, type attached to them. So it's an interesting thing to think about is how we have this sort of shift into thinking about um, characters who are physically different or blue um, somehow became more interesting and, and powerful in that way. So that's great. Um, I think, unfortunately, that we're going to have to wrap it up there. It's just gone five o'clock. Um, but thanks again to Esther and Reb for your fascinating talks and for um, answering all of my rambling questions. And um, we'd appreciate that you, you came to talk to us today. Um, thanks also to the Long Room Hub for hosting the seminar series. And um, thanks to the School of English as well. And thanks everyone um, who attended and watched. So please do register for Sorka Niflan's talk um, this day, two weeks time. And remember to send in abstracts for our call for papers, which again, you can find on the Long Room Hub What's On um, website. You can find on our Twitter, you can find on the School of English website. So um, we'll see you this day in two weeks. And thanks again to Reb and Esther. Thank you. Thanks. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.